Welcome to the Coffee with Cody podcast, a conversation series around race. Double up, three or four times, I ain't telling no lies, I just run it up. Never let a hard time have a wuss. Double up, I ain't telling no lies, I just... Yeah. I ain't telling no lies, I just... In today's episode, we talk with my friend Wandile. Wandile is actually from South Africa, but he came to the U.S., to do his master's degree in architecture. Wandele is the CEO and founder of the design firm Ubuntu, and he is also an Obama Foundation scholar. I don't know what the correct term is, but he's a pretty smart, pretty talented guy, really giving back to the world, and I thought it would be interesting to have him on and have his perspective uh, from South Africa and also being in the United States. And now for today's episode. Growing up, uh, how would you describe the community that you were a part of? And you can take that how you want to, um, social, economic, uh, cultural, um, whatever factors you want to describe your community. I'm just curious to get a sense. And I know you grew up in South Africa, so a little bit different than other guests I've had. So I'm curious to hear more on that. Yeah, I, um, I grew up in a close-knit community where... Um, we lived on the concept and the principle of Ubuntu. Uh, a Zulu word, a phrase that means I am because we are. So that means if my mom is cooking dinner at night and uh, as she's cooking, she runs out of an onion, uh, she would you know, send me to uh, run next door, get an onion, come back, and she continues cooking, mid-cooking, right? And that was normal. So that idea that I am because we are, um, that idea that our successes and failures were interconnected, um, that strong sense of community. Like if a new uh, person came into my community, uh, everyone would come together and, and gather their uh, scrap metals or whatever material they have to help them build their home. Um, so yeah, I grew up in a, a strong um communal uh, setting and then you came to the u.s you did school was it just for college that you were in the u.s i actually don't know the answer to that was it just your time at andrews yeah yeah i came i came to the u.s when i was i came as a 18 year old huh? interesting now i'm like 26 uh i came to the u.s because I wanted to study in an already developed country and learn the principles they've used to develop, you know. Um, the U.S. had, you know, a strong sense of slums and, and stuff back in the 80s, and but they were able to clean up and um, develop uh, pretty rapidly and quickly and, and sometimes effectively. So I wanted to learn some of uh, those principles and combine that with local ingenuity in South Africa so that we could um, also develop uh, in a way that's contextual uh, to us. So yeah, I came when I was 18. I had just done a year of college in South Africa, uh, studying town and regional planning, but I wanted to, to come here and, and start my uh, architecture. Obviously, South Africa is... I don't want to say unique because it's not like 
racism and racial issues aren't unique, but the apartheid and its impact and how um, has been how that's been um, dealt with over the last number of years is probably unique from a country standpoint. Um, I'm curious. Growing up, obviously you you were impacted by that, but like, do you have a defining moment in in time or a a, a set of you know experiences where you first became aware that race and and culture were different and apartheid existed? Uh, not that I remember. I just always knew that there was racism and there was apartheid, and that's the nature of growing up in uh, South Africa. So grew up in a uh, pretty not predominantly in an all-black community, um, all different all-black communities. You know, the the communities called the townships, which were designed by apartheid architects at some of these labor camps, thirty forty kilometers away from town, um, and people were removed from their land and resources and put there so that they could be sort of the workers for the apartheid regime. So I grew up in one of those, uh, but post-apartheid, apartheid ended in 1984. I was born three months. I was born three months before apartheid ended. So that is interesting. And my second name is Freedom because of that. My grandmother had fought alongside Nelson Mandela. Um, so apartheid and racism were not things I learned about from the textbook or things that I had to particularly experience as a kid before knowing about them. But it's just, just like common knowledge, you know what I mean? Like my mom would tell me the stories because they're so fresh, you know? It's just like yesterday. <laughs> and they would tell me how, you know, privileged I am, quote-unquote, to be sort of living post-apartheid. But, you know, just because the laws changed didn't mean the hearts of people change, no, the economies change, or the situations change drastically. So I, you know, still grew up and faced quite a bit and continue to face quite a bit of the remnants of, of, of apartheid. And I think in South Africa as a country, we continue to, to battle that and, and try and find innovative ways to um, heal and um, level the playing field. Uh, for all people, regardless of their socioeconomic status and race. So that's kind of how I knew about racism and apartheid. And then when I started going to school, I didn't go to like a, a school in my community. So because schools in my community is similar to America, we're deprived of, you know, resources. Um, so as a result, my parents wanted, you know, better education for me. And uh, according to the apartheid caste system, the next level I could go to, was um, if a historically Indian-only school, but now it's post-apartheid, still predominantly Indian, but I could go there. So they had slightly better resources. So going there and, uh, you know, kids being uh, racist or biased against me because I'm black, again, the, the apartheid regime taught everyone. Um, it was divide and conquer. So it was black, Indian colored which is mixed black and white and then uh white so what happened was um 
since they were given sort of like a place at the table that was higher than us, they were told that they're better and given better resources as a way to divide and conquer. So I still felt that from the teachers. I felt that from the students. But it was interesting to see because when I first came, students wouldn't want to sit next to me or you know eat with me and all this stuff like that. If we were from the Indian descent when we were kids. And these are stuff that were being told by parents. But by grade four, uh, we were like friends with like a, a good number of the cats when they were like, this is stupid. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what's going on? Uh, so a couple of OGs uh, came out of that. Uh, but it was because now they could to a certain degree think for themselves. So I'm sure when they went back home, they're like, yeah, no, I don't have any black friends and da da da. But at school, we could chill together some of them um so yeah yeah it's just so interesting to hear about like these um policies or like frameworks on the world that are like the whole caste system is literally just made up but yet how that totally impacted people's view of other humans based on this set of expectations that a group of people who are not diverse at all set out for the world and it's just so interesting for me to hear that um and like just think that that is like the most uh like uh, it's clearly defined and i think what the u.s is struggling with now is that racism in the u.s has not had other than the slave like other than slavery there's not really been this defined caste system and so we're in this harder to move past it stage because it's more subtle like the underlying things that in the u.s where it's like i'm not racist or you know what are the other things that people say that are well-meaning and they're like i don't want to be associated with racist um because i'm not you know i'm not calling someone you know somewhere in the caste system like i'm not subscribed to that mentality um but for you, how would how would you describe racism? Because I'm curious to 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 hear that, and how might that differ from discrimination or um, other things? And you can systemic racism, however you want to go into that. I'd start by saying I think racism in the U.S. and racism in South Africa is slightly different in the context of South Africa. There's systemic racism because again, the institutions were built for the minority white people. Uh, which I think is also a very uh, distinguishing factor that it was the white minority that ruled the black majority in South Africa versus the white majority ruling uh, the black minority and the other minority in in America. Uh, However, I think I always joke to my friends and say racism in South Africa is like primary school, like middle school racism, like in-your-face type of racism. It's like, you know, you can see how the person looks at you or they walk in the streets around you. Um, you know, you can see sort of the colors coming together uh, or going to each other at the mall. Uh, it's just it's just very apparent. Um, versus in America, it's more like PhD level racism, right? You, you can't see it until you put some glasses on. You know what I mean? It's, uh, you know, it's systemic. It's you know, law, it's part of the law. It's like, well, the cop 
is allowed to stop you, which is not racist, part of the law, it's a rule. But you probably will die if you're black. You know what I mean? Um, you know, people are allowed to hire anyone for their schools, but they'll probably hire mostly whites, right? So it's it's just like next level uh, type of racism. Um, then what is racism? Right now, I think I think racism is is shame manifested. So what does that mean? It's like. And shame can be, you know, something from your present state, like your life experience, but also shame could be something inherited based on what your family is known for or what your family did. So there's two ways of dealing with this shame. You can either, um, you can either say, well, I'm going to tackle this shame head on and be vulnerable and want to learn and make amends. Or I'm going to cover my shame and ridicule anyone who calls me out on this and sort of go the polar opposite. So uh, you sort of see that contrast um, in America where the other guys are like, oh, we did nothing wrong. We, we were just stronger, wiser, and better, hence slavery and industrial revolution you would have done the same thing right hence the Ku Klux Klan and other people who believe in in similar sentiments um and I think the problem with that but that problem with that is that it's based on a fear like if you, if you read any of these guys manifestos the KKK and all these cats they are afraid that if they give black people in America equity um, an equitable existence, uh, they're going to do unto them what they did to them, right? So that's what shame does to you when you try and bottle it up and uh, attack anything that even attempts to call you out on it. Um, but in reality, we're not, we're not trying to get revenge. We're just trying to be equal, <laughs> you know? Um, and then the other end is embracing the shame, embracing uh, the difficulty of the history, and embracing sort of even sometimes biologically falling on the wrong, uh, and then wanting to undo some of those things that you've learned that diminish the other, whilst also wanting to sort of actively be able to be the change that you want to see. Yeah, and I think that part is hard, I think, for a lot of people, especially if you feel you're middle of the road or even, I think, the progressive, I don't, uh, there's a term that I've heard people refer to as like, you know, the I'm not racist or I went to, you know, the I have black friends or like I went to a really diverse school. Like, I think those are, that's the hardest point to be in and I, I mean, I find myself in that scenario, like going, having gone to Andrews where a super diverse school and even just being around in the community. And like, I don't even really remember the point where like the different, like where a single culture existed for me. Like I know my family looks a certain way, but I never, I never remember not having friends that like were only like me. And so, but 
that said, I still have so many um, individual like biases in me from that are like a product of society that I have to regularly check myself on or hopefully have other people check me on. Uh, and that's really hard to do because they're much more subtle, like, and they're, they're disguised. And I've talked about this on previous episode, but it's like the well-meaning, oh, there's a guy in a hoodie, he's black, you know, let me just, you know, I'm not racist, but I'm just going to protect myself and like walk around and avoid it. And, and avoid, walk on the other you know, side of the road. Yeah, it's, not like, <laughs> it's not like I think he's bad. Because, like, and it, it's like this really subtle, like you can ju- easily justify it as like, a, oh, well, you know, I'm not hurting him. Or, the, or I should say he or she, um, because I'm walking on the other side. So I'm just reducing my risk. But it's like those things like that are a product of that's the phd level yeah. that i told yeah. you yeah and those are the ones that it's hard to like be aware of and then also like do anything about because i ha- like i have that wired in me not well maybe that's just example also like you know talking about the whole andrews experience and people like oh i went to it was college or i've got black friends etc it's like this like i i have a lot of female friends right but you know statistically one in three of them has been involved or been a part of sexual assault but i don't know any of that about them right a few of them have come into deep situations that resulted in them telling me some of these stories and then i was like yo and this happened when we were still like together at this place or at this school and but i i couldn't see you know what i mean so it's like you know proximity doesn't mean inclusion or understanding of the other and i think that's something very important uh you know for us to to learn and look at it it takes intentional um looking and also like i didn't understand like a lot of things about uh feminism and um just like the the brute of oppression that women face for years and my female friends would tell me and tell me i just didn't get it right but i kept listening i kept engaging like tell me more ask questions i kept and then it's it's clicked i was at a barbershop with my sister and as i'm out there dude walks in starts hitting on my sister in very inappropriate ways the other cats know me in the barbershop they're like yo shut up like shut up like yo you're gonna get beaten like shut up like other cats are like yo and he just doesn't stop and he's like a little tipsy right and then i was just like and this is like my older sister that i respect and look up to right so i was just like glued to my uh chair frozen for two reasons one I was mad, obviously, of the incident that was happening. Two, I was like, yo, I'd even be a hypocrite if I were, like, to stand up and start fighting this cat right now. Because this has happened in this same barbershop a million times, and I've never said anything. I just kept doing my haircuts, and I just, you know, laughed it off, whatever. I wasn't participating in it, but I've seen it a lot of times. Why didn't I say something? Also, why didn't I see it as wrong then? Right? 
So it takes yourself really emerging into that. And then after that incident, I started seeing it everywhere, right? And I started trying to advocate for it everywhere. So it's a very intentional, tough, uh, but very worthwhile exercise and, and immersion. Yeah, I think that's key. And I, part of the reason I have this show uh, is to kind of break down that barrier or like minimize the barrier, hopefully for some people to get started in that conversation. Cause it might be harder to, you know, actively engage someone like if you don't have a lot of friends that look different than you or even if you do and you haven't had close conversations like just getting like that initial yeah just getting that initial conversation and hearing that initial conversation can be challenging so hopefully and that's why this is coffee with cody like it's it's a conversation it's a starting point as and yeah and like i hope that like my conversations aren't like these are our conversations. Like this is between me and you. Other people are going to hear it, but I hope that it's kind of a, a catalyst for people to go and start having conversations with other people over time. And to your point, it's it's that journey and like come aware, but just like repeat over and over again. Ask the questions. Like I don't understand this, but I want to. Like as many times as possible. But also like read books, you know, because sometimes it can be annoying to be asked the same questions. Um, I think there's a lot of um, resources out there, bro. There's there's a whole genre of music dedicated to telling you what the black experience is, <laughs> which is like rap music, right? There's uh, Netflix with you know several documentaries on this. Um, you know, there's books. There's it's literally widespread. So I appreciate. No, like what I'm saying is like, I appreciate you coming. It's like, hey man, I watched 13 and they spoke about this, this, this. I hadn't, I never realized that, you know, starting the conversation from there versus going up to a black dude, be like, bro, I don't see race. Like, is racism a thing? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like, yeah, that's a problem. Like, I don't, I don't have time for that. <laughs> that's a good point is to, there's lots of resources, um, you know, and sitting and watching Netflix and, and, and listening. Well, I guess a lot of the stuff actually that I've done is like hip hop evolution is interesting. Cause it shows, it talks about the history of hip hop and where that all came from. Like 13th there's, and those, you're not going to get ridicule for watching those in the privacy of your house. So it's a good place to start. For sure. But also it shows me that you care because I've had a lot of conversation with racist cats who acts like they care, but have a very formulated mindset and they don't want to change. They just are trying to have a conversation with me to help me realize that I'm wrong <laughs> about my own experience, which is really weird. Um, so, you know, we, we obviously don't want that. That's a good point as well. Um, so there, there's been a lot of conversation around law enforcement and racism and discrimination. And like, I, well, I think that has a place and it's obviously a, an important issue to address. Um, you've approached racism from uh, a kind of a community standpoint with your, um, with your architecture firm. And I'm curious about how you see um, racism and how that can be addressed outside of just police brutality and, and, and law enforcement? 
Oh uh, yeah. Um, look, racism is not uh confined to police brutality. Um, in fact, it's limiting to see racism only in police brutality. That's just the hot topic avenue or medium right now because people are literally dying. So, so I don't blame the world focusing on that because that's really needs to change and needs to be for. Um, uh, yeah, it just needs to be changed. But this trend exists everywhere. You know, you go to Andrews, um, the most ethnically diverse university in America, or the second most ethnically diverse university in America every other year, right? But the faculty is like just another white college, <laughs> right? So the faculty isn't representative of their student body. Doesn't reflect the diversity of the student body. Um, you look at you know uh, communities, the way communities were built. You know, there's the redlining, uh, Levittown, um, and how these communities were built, and then how that's connected to the banking system, and how they wouldn't lend to certain communities, and whilst lending to others, leading to higher poverty. And then how that poverty then leads to higher school dropout and school dropouts leading to crime, crime leading to justification of higher policing, higher policing leading to what we're now protesting. It's all connected. So literally every profession plays a role in systemic racism. It's how then do we use our skill sets to start untangling uh, some of those very strongly tied uh, systemic racism beliefs and systems that exist. I like that point you just made there at the end is using our unique skill sets for you. It's architecture and community building and, and which is largely foundational to a lot of this. But, you know, for me, I don't have that skill set. So it's going to be a different approach that I could do. And because the issue is so big and systemic, having people tackle it from each of the phases simultaneously as opposed to, you know, police. And then maybe two years later, we'll get to banking. And three years later, it's like everyone, yeah. it's like a wave. <laughs> um, because I, th I think one of the, one of the hard things though, is like for, you mentioned Andrews and the, and the professors, it's like, it takes time for uh, minorities to get a PhD. And so um, that's, like there are harder things to tackle and sometimes what, and I'm not saying it's not worth tackling and that it's not a problem, um, with that. Um, but how do we, how do we address those type of, like, I guess there's, there's more than that, but these issues that are, are time sensitive, um, or because a lot of the times it's been like, Oh, we're going to, you know, have 33% minority people, but it's like, okay, but like, if you're not giving opportunities for people to get into PhD programs um, or like there's this whole chain, like you just highlighted, um, what are your thoughts on addressing those more time sensitive and harder to, to tackle issues? I think it's intention uh, to be honest um, because, you know, a lot of schools and a lot of companies, will say, oh, we're going to have 33% minorities. But they don't really want to have 33% minority. They like the culture that they have, which is white. 
and they are saying that because it's under pressure, such as like Black Lives Matter, or um, it makes students want to come, it's hip, it looks better for them, right? And then five years down the line, it's like, oh, we've tried, we just haven't found a good fit, and this, 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 this. But bro, America literally has 54 million people. No, sorry, South Africa has 54 million people, America has 350 million people. Um, there's, there's cats out there with PhDs in architecture. There's cats out there with PhDs in business. It just takes more intentionality in looking uh, for those cats. But if you already have asset, <laughs> like going into it, you're not going to achieve it because you don't want it. <sighs> the thing with racism and systemic racism and stuff like that, I'm seeing this because I'm dealing with a couple of colleges right now, Ivy Leagues and stuff. Uh, through architecture, and it's and I can see the deans they're freaking out. They're like, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. I'm like, you don't get it, right? You're going to fail at trying to implement all these things because you haven't done the internal work first, right? You know what I mean? Like, if because I can tell this, this, this is to them this is a burden. It's a burden that I need to react to so that our school keeps afloat and it's not viewed as racist and it's hard work. Like, no, that's not what it is. You, Dean X, Y, or Z, needs to sit down and be like, yo, what's going on in the world? So I never thought about this whole race thing. They are the ones who need to go out and watch those, those documentaries, listen to some hip hop, read those books you know, and start having those conversations with their families, with other white peers who may get it, with some of their friends, etc. And when they get it, then it's not a laborious task that's hard. It's like, oh, we've been missing this all along. I, I'm going to definitely do that. So like whenever I hire a woman, but then it's not like, oh man, I need to have a 30% quarter woman. Like, uh, I'm like, no, we need that diversity. There's things that, you know, she sees that we would never think about and see. And we're not designing for a male-dominated world. We're designing for a world for everyone. So we need that. It's not a hard decision. <laughs> it's not a laborious task. It's exciting. Until people get to that point, Andrew's rule and other schools will remain struggling with that. Yeah, no, I think it's it's been interesting. I I don't know if South Africa still does this, but I think there was like a like you have to employ a percentage based on like you can only you have to employ like eighty percent black people and twenty percent. I think that was what it was when I was there a number of years ago. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, there's something called the BEE, the Black Economic Empowerment. Uh, joined. I'm not sure about legislating in terms of like every company needs to have X amount, but if your company is to get tax cuts, that's the thing. The company to get tax cuts, they need to have X amount and then X amount and X amount of women, X amount of black, X amount. You know what I mean? So, and depending on how diverse it is, the more diverse it is, the more tax cuts. The less diverse it is, the less tax cuts. So there's that. 
I just have always found those program like, well, I understand the, the, uh, purpose and like, it's, it's, it like logically it makes sense to attach a monetary incentive to something you want to advance socially. It just feels like at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, create that internal drive to do it. Like you were expressing it, it becomes like a, Oh, well we have three Karens and two, I shouldn't say names cause that's probably going to a, it's stereotyping um, type of thing, but you know what I mean? Like it becomes like you, you don't really care about the per- people there and their skill sets. You just they're like, Oh, I've checked the box and therefore I've made more money. It's it, it, it's like a band. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. It's failing right now. <laughs> That's it was good intentioned. It was good intentioned, but you know it's failing. So, but you know I, I'm glad they were trying something. So I think we need to try something better. I agree. And these these are the type of things that I wanted to like try and, and call out because it's like again, it's like it wasn't a it wasn't a place of like oh we're gonna just do this and check it off the box and get like, I think there was genuine like intent to, to improve, improve race and like equity by those type of things. But at the same time, it's like, and there's no, there's no harm in saying it didn't work and moving on or like adding to, like, I think that's an, that's a whole nother can of worms of um, people's and their perspectives on failure. But I think with stuff like that, it's like, okay, we tried and like, didn't didn't do what we like the goal is not to have um you know x percentage of races and ethnicities in a, in a culture in a, in a thing it's to be the best business for uh like add the most value to society and how do you do that by accomplish like it, it just has you have to get more um warm and fuzzy which businesses i think struggle with because they want to measure everything like oh what's our or it's our accountability, but I think it, it has to get, it has to be a moral obligation. But the fact that the government has to force businesses to, you know, create equal opportunities for all is the, is the problem, right? So, because it's like, I get it. It's like the police, they're killing black people, right? If the government doesn't intervene and say, hey, we're changing these laws, so now if you do this, you will be held accountable, blah, blah, blah. It will continue happening. So I guess in a similar way, the government was trying to intervene and say, hey, equity is important. If you're unwilling to do it, we will force it to happen. Um, and it just, you know, it just hasn't been the most effective way to do that. The same thing with... Um... And my mind went to immediately. It's the same thing with minimum wage. It's like the government had to intervene to be like, look, this is the lowest standard because like, obviously slavery is not acceptable, but also at the same time, paying people nothing is not acceptable. And obviously there's a whole nother can of worms to open up there, but it's like, that doesn't mean everyone in the world should be paid in the, or in the U S it's like $7 and something. I think it differs by state, but it's like, that's not to say that everyone deserves $7 and 25 cents an hour. But, and the same thing with, with, um, diversity, it's like not everyone deserve, like it's a baseline of like, okay, this is the minimum acceptable product for your company. Agreed. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. It's like, um, in, 
in in construction there's something called the IBC International Building Codes. Uh, that gives you sort of the the minimum baseline of what you need to do. And you know, uh, my professor always reminds me like, "Yo, this is the minimum. This is not what you have to do. This is the minimum. You cannot go below this." So yeah, like they'll tell you for every twelve people, you know. You need two toilet seats or one urinal and stuff like that. If you do that, you're just like at the minimum. But if you create a better experience, you improve that. Yeah, I mean, in Florida, for me, that's a huge thing. Like, I've just been thinking about it. It's like, I don't want the, like, the codes here have improved, but it's like, at the same time, I would much rather have like a, a solid concrete block wall than just the cinder blocks sure. that are filled in in the corners which is the building code like that's minimum but it's like if the whole thing yes. if all the cinder block walls are filled in i'd feel much better about it and it would, it's much safer um it's the same <laughs> it's the same thing like it's yeah. a good start and it'll probably and it probably reduces yeah. you know economic Risk impact and fatalities bit. but it's like it's a start it's not the finish line so. sure I want to move toward wrapping up because I want to be mindful of your time. We've talked about this kind of off and on, but um, I think one thing that's important for people coming out of this is this con- the concept of being an ally uh, against racism. And maybe that's overhyped as a term, um, but like what what are the steps from your perspective about creating... I think it first starts, we've talked about, it's like creating open and honest conversation around race with people. Like what are, what are the steps to being, I'm a white person. What are the good steps about being a better white person when it comes to diversity and race? So, um, someone asked me in the, because I was speaking a lot on, on race and, um, just calling out a couple of things during the whole George Floyd incident. And someone asked me, is like, Hey, have you been having a lot of like conversations with your white friends on this because they know that I have white friends? Um, you know, like the close ones, like, you know, Steven that I talked to. And then I was like, well, no. <laughs> the reason why they're my friends is because they get it. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't have to sit down with Steven's like, hey, Steven. See what's going on right now is really bad, man. It's affecting us as a black community, and this, this is like, no, man. Uh, <laughs> Steven knows, right? Uh, so that's interesting because we didn't wait for George Floyd to happen to have conversations about race. That's part of life, right? We know these are the issues that happen, and we're constantly together trying to find innovative ways to solve them, right? So I didn't have to now suddenly educate him. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this to say, yo, you know, it's not about George Floyd and what's going on right now, and then that's done. It's not like this hip thing right now, and then it's gone. It's a way of life. Um, And before, and I love what you're doing with this sort of conversation. So before you come out there and sort of, you know, advocate for this, this, this. Do work in yourself. As I said, like, what are your held beliefs? What are your biases? Like, what are you struggling with? Uh, Is it, you know, like people in college, I had, 
you know, a stint of friends for a short time who would make borderline racist jokes, right? They'd be like, oh, show each other a meme that has a basketball rim. And then it says, the only way to get black people to throw trash is if you put a basketball rim around it. Right? Right? It's like, oh, it's funny. I'm like, no, it's not. It's racist. Right? So when a racist joke comes in, is the first thing saying, oh, it's funny, or is it like, oh, that's very inappropriate? Like, how would it feel if that was about you? Right? So there's a lot of internal work first that has to be done um, amongst yourself. And acknowledging that a lot of these things you've learned is based on your environment and sometimes not your willingly choosing them, but you can willingly stay in it now or willingly actively learn to to change. So I think that's that's the important thing because once you get it then then there's no formula. Like there's no step by step formula. You just call out injustice and, and equity and that's who you are. Like no one has ever set me down and said, hey look, this is how you understand the plight of white people. You should treat them equally. You should love them. You should see them as equals. You should see them as humans. No. No one's ever said, you know, no one's ever had that talk with me. But I still see you as an equal, right? I still treat you with love and respect. 